love, peace, unity, understanding, harmony amongst one another. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Rip, roaring, ready to go. I give you my sports talk podcast with entertaining value. I give you the most entertaining, thought-provoking podcast that you can listen to. Rate, review, subscribe anywhere where you listen to podcasts and you will not be disappointed. I give you football, basketball, baseball, college football, college basketball, UFC, MMA, and of course, the loves of my life, the Georgetown Hoyas. And sometimes I might go a little bit farther and talk about what else is happening in the world. Wendell's World in Sports, the most awesome podcast that you can listen to, rate, review, subscribe anywhere where you listen to your podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most unique, entertaining, and compelling sports talk podcast you'll ever listen to. Let's be great. Let's be great. Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Giannis charging down the lane to the rim. Double clutch. No good. Tipped in. Giannis tipped it home. Subscribe, rate, and review anywhere and everywhere you listen to this and all your favorite podcasts. And now, from Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Rip, Roin, and ready to rumble, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going on today in the world of sports. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur. Mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Que pasa, mi amigos? Mi amo, Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Konnichiwa, wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Namaste, shalom. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So glad that I could be with you. Thank you very much for listening to my podcast. As always, before I begin, I want to ask, how are you feeling? How are you living? How are you doing? Are you doing everything that you need to do to make your world, to make your community, to make your region, to make your household, to make your place of employment, to make your hangout spot the place to be if you want to go ahead and emanate Love and peace and unity and understanding and listening and togetherness and harmonious relationships between people who might not look like you, people with a different skin tone than you, people who are from the other sides of the track, people who worship another God, people who might love someone that you might not love. Are you willing to go ahead and take care of that situation? So the younger generation, because as I mentioned before, my generation, your generation, the generation before and after. After too far gone, too steeped in selfishness, too steeped in ignorance, too steeped in meism, too steeped in racism for us to have the society that we should have. So it's going to be up to your children and then their children and then their children and then their children to go ahead and move this country, to move the society, to move this world to a better place of unity, peace, love, understanding, education, and respect for all, regardless of where you're from, regardless of your skin tone, regardless of all of those things. So hopefully it might not be for us, but for the younger generation, let's see what we can do to go ahead and do the right thing, as Spike Lee would say. Wendell's World is Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. To be honest with y'all, I was going to start this podcast. I was supposed to start this podcast a couple of hours ago, but uh, 
you know, I, I just wasn't feeling it, man. I just really wasn't. Uh, got back home from the skeet today, took a quick little nap, and then got something to eat and did some other things. And before you knew it, it was like 8 o'clock, and I wanted to start this podcast, recording this podcast at 6 o'clock. Now, here we are near midnight on a Tuesday, and I got to be waking up in five hours to go to work, and I'm just starting this podcast. So, you know, what is going to keep me going? What is going to keep me energized? What is going to keep me enthused? What is going to keep me focused in terms of giving y'all the best podcast, the most unique podcast, the most entertaining podcast, the most thought-provoking podcast that I could give you? What is going to be the key that's going to rev this engine to get me going? Well, of course, 1980, Monterey, the great, the one and only Marvin Gaye. That's what I'm talking about. Keep on there we go, baby. There we go. Like I mentioned before, now I'm ready to go. Now I'm rip roaring and ready to go, man. Let's get it. Let's go ahead and start talking about week two of the NFL. Let me go ahead and talk about some NFL football games. Let me go ahead and discuss some of the bounce back games for the legit contending teams that lost this past opening weekend. I'm talking about the Buffalo Bills continuing their dominance against Miami. Winning 35 to nothing on Sunday. The Bills have now won six consecutive games in the series, doing so by an average of 20 points. The last time that these two teams met was in Buffalo at the end of last season. The score was Buffalo 56, Miami 26. In fact, the 35 to nothing defeat, the Bills, the dominance, the beatdown, the whooping that the Bills gave Miami this past Sunday, it was the second worst shutout lost by the Dolphins at home. Only topped by a 43 to nothing beatdown to New England in 2019. Was watching some of the game, of course, on the Red Zone channel. For the most part, the Bills played pretty well. On defense, they played well. But um, we're still looking for that offense to really kick in the gear. We're still looking for Josh Allen to be that six-year, $238 million extension type of guy. We're still looking for Buffalo to take that next step. Now, two games into the season, playing some pretty good defense is pretty, playing against two pretty good defenses in Pittsburgh and Miami is really not going to give you that situation. It's not going to really give you that advantage to go ahead and really put up some monster numbers. But, you know, a win is a win. And as I mentioned before, coming off that disappointing loss against uh, Pittsburgh, just confidence-wise, just trying to build some momentum-wise, it's good for Buffalo to go ahead and do that, especially when you're speaking about a team in Miami where – you're speaking about a franchise where the glass is going to be half full in terms of those guys, an up-and-coming team that had aspirations of not even, if, if they're not going to make the playoffs, at least striving very hard to compete to make the playoffs. Now, as again, two games into the season, one game does not mean that the team is going to be uh, eliminated from the playoffs. A win doesn't mean that all of a sudden now Buffalo is going to be one of the elite teams in the NFL based on what they did. Again, the offense a little bit shaky. Josh Allen threw for two touchdown passes, went 17 of 33, 179 yards, pedestrian. But as I mentioned before, they got the win. Zach Moss ran for two scores. Devin Singletary Rushed for 82 yards on 13 carries, had another touchdown. So, 
yeah, the Bills offense did what they needed to do. And the most important thing for Buffalo on offense is that they had balance. Rush the ball 30 times, pass the ball 33 times. When you can go ahead and do that and you had the defense playing like it was playing, then you're going to be highly successful regardless of who you're playing. Again, putting up 45 points and you know having an offensive explosion when you're playing defenses that are led by Mike Tomlin and Brian Flores is going to be difficult for any team in the league. But you know as I mentioned before, the Bills got right by going ahead and doing what they need to do, not just on offense, which can always improve. The weapons are there. The talent is there. The continuity is there. The consistency is there. The relationships are there to continue to build and uh, try to get to the plateau, try to get to the level that they reached last season on offense. Josh Allen continuing his progression on becoming truly an elite quarterback year in and year out, continuing that uh, journey that he's taking right now. I think Buffalo is in a good place offensively to do that. But the defense is uh, really where we're going to be looking at. And adding insult to injury, or adding injury to insult, if you want to say, the Bills knocked out Miami quarterback Tua Tungavailoa early in the uh, first quarter with a rib injury. I mean, in fact, Tua only lasted two series. Got knocked out of the game on a failed fourth down play near midfield. He needed a couple of tries just to get up, just to get to the sidelines, speaking about Tunga Vailoa, and was carted to the locker room not long afterwards, and my man didn't return. Before the injury, though, Tua was one of three for 13 yards, so it wasn't like that he was uh, setting the world on fire. His timetable on when he's going to be returning to be the starting quarterback for the Miami Dolphins is unknown. I'm wondering, I'm thinking, this is not, I'm not going to go there just yet. I'm not going to bring up the point just yet. I'm not going to bring up the discussion point just yet, but because we're only two games in, so I'm not going to be trying to make any bold proclamations two games in, but let's just go ahead. You have the Miami Dolphins whose expectations, whose hopes are to either make the playoffs or be a serious contender for the playoffs. If we're going to be dealing with this with Tua, the injuries, and we know about his injury history in college, if not just because of injuries, but if Tua comes back and he's sputtering he's middling he's I don't know he's just not showing that he can be that guy when will the Dolphins go back call up the Houston Texans and go ahead and ask for Deshaun Watson I'm I'm not I'm not saying that they should do that next week I'm not saying that they should do that after two games I'm not saying that I'm not saying that they should make any concrete evaluations about what Tua Tungavailoa is as a quarterback I'm not saying that but man, you know, we're starting the second season for Tua. And again, we're speaking about expectations for the Dolphins. There's no Ryan Fitzpatrick to bail out Tunga Bailoa. There's no Ryan Fitzmagic to come in and complete the save to give Tua the win in this situation. He's sitting on the sidelines with an injury in, in Washington. So Jacoby Brissett, this is the guy that you're going to be rolling with. How much does the Miami Dolphins, how much expectations do the Miami Dolphins have in terms of making the playoffs to where you know what Tua got hurt Jacoby Brissett is not the answer at the uh, quarterback position so you know early on in the season or you know by week six or week seven or week eight if the Dolphins are sitting somewhere two and six the Dolphins are sitting somewhere three and five or something like that in a situation like that do the Dolphins organization give a call to the Houston Texans and say 
All right, let's talk to Turkey again about Deshaun Watson. When does that discussion come up? When did that start to become a discussion point down in Miami? It'll be interesting to see going forward. Wendell's World in Sports. Uh, uh, Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, you know, pedaling back to the defense for Buffalo. They've been solid this year. With the exception of the Steelers scoring 17 points in the fourth quarter in week one, the Bills' defense has allowed six points total in the other seven quarters they've played combined. And the seven of those points that the Steelers scored was off, was off a block punt. So, so far, the defense is averaging around three net yards per play. And the league average after week one for NFL defenses is 5.6 net yards per play. So, if again, we're speaking, I'm speaking about the offense trying to reach the levels of success and power and consistency that they reached last uh, season. One of the reasons why the Bills had to do that because the defense was not the same defense. Sean McDermott, the defensive coordinator, used to be the defensive coordinator at Carolina, was supposed to go into Buffalo and improve and upgrade that uh, defense. They went ahead, first-round draft pick a couple of years ago, got Ed Oliver, who was supposed to be one of the premier defensive players while he was at the University of Houston in college. He was supposed to be a guy that was supposed to be bolstering the efficiency of the Buffalo Bills. Well, for the last couple of years, or at least with the turnaround with Buffalo to where they're now considered one of the elite teams in the AFC and possible Super Bowl contenders, it's been mainly the offense that's been getting the headlines. It's been the uh, maturation and development and the superstardom of Josh Allen, at least it was for the 2020 season. It was the acquisition of Stefan Diggs to give uh, Allen a throwing partner. It was all of those things that constituted Buffalo now being talked about as truly legit Super Bowl contenders. It wasn't anything about the defense. It was if the defense could just play decently that Buffalo would have a chance because of all the weapons and because of how potent they were on offense. Well, if the defense is going to play like this, okay, Josh Allen, you don't have to be com- uh, completing 70% of your passes for over 4,500 4, yards and doing all the ridiculous things that you did last season. It would be nice. It would be nice. It would be nice. But you don't have to reach that level for the Bills to still be Super Bowl contenders because of the improvement of that defense if they can continue to uh, play at the level that they're playing at. Now, you can make the argument that, hey, look, you know, they play the Pittsburgh Steelers team the first week of the season that's still in flux in terms of getting their offense together. New offensive line for the Steelers, Ben Roethlisberger, not the quarterback that he once was, you know, Najee Harris, uh, running back. They're going to try to, um, you know, put him into the mix. So this was a Steelers offense that basically was still under construction the first week of the season against Buffalo. And then you go to Miami who was dominated by Buffalo. But then again, you had Jacoby Brissett at their quarterback. So how much stock should we put into the Bills dominant statistical dominant performance over those two teams. Time will tell, but at least those guys did what they had to do. And again, speaking about disappointing and embarrassing here on Wendell's World of Sports Podcast with yours truly, Wendell Wallace. 
I mean, the Dolphins. I'm rooting for you, Brian Flores, but come on, man. I mean, you were completely dominated at home in all areas in a market like Miami where, look, man, you know, they're not going to be supporting you through thick and thin. This isn't the uh, Chicago Bears. This isn't one of those type of franchises, man. There's too many things to do in Miami. There's too many things to do as far as going to South Beach. And when you're speaking about the state of Florida and the dingbats and the uh, knuckleheads that live in that area, that has never been what we would consider a sports town, sports city, sports state in any way, shape, or form. So here you are on Sunday, home opener, after a big win in Foxborough against the New England Patriots, and then you lay an egg like that to the Bills, averaging only three yards per play on 70 plays, only 216 total yards on 12 drives, only averaging 3.5 yards per carry during the game on 25 carries for 71 yards. Come on, man. Jacoby Brissett coming in, averaging only three yards per pass on 44 attempts. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about the Miami Dolphins. Again, it's early, but they got a problem. They got a situation at the quarterback position. You went out and got yourself Jalen Waddle, And, uh, you know, so you're, you're, you're trying to build on that side of the football. But, uh, again, when do we start hearing Deshaun Watson going to Miami in terms of discussion points down there? In the city of, or uh, yeah, in the city of uh, Miami, Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us, speaking about what's happening, speaking about what's going down in the world of sports in terms of football is concerned. The Green Bay Packers. Huh? I guess everybody was sitting there talking about, oh man, Green Bay, this, that, and the other. After they got embarrassed, after they got mauled, after they got humiliated by the New Orleans Saints. You saw what Jameis Winston in New Orleans did against Carolina. This past weekend, yikes, one game, man, one game, man, one game, man, one game, man. But uh, the Green Bay Packers got their first win of the season Monday night at Lambeau against Detroit 35-18. You know, after the worst performance since week six of last season when they were mauled and beat up and thrown around and kicked and bullied by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the Packers got their first win of the season this season, and Aaron Rodgers improved to 7-0 and and Games after losses, 7-0 and since uh, the 2018 season. Went out there, completed 22 of 27 passes, 255 yards, four touchdowns, had a 145.6 passer rating, connected with Devontae Adams eight times for 121 yards, targeted seven different uh, receivers, so spreading the love, spreading the wealth. Aaron Jones had 115 all-purpose yards and four touchdowns. He had 67 yards rushing on 17 carries. Three of his six receptions went for touchdowns. So after Green Bay trailed 17-14 at halftime because Jared Goff was doing his best Aaron Rodgers of 2020 impersonation, completing 13 of his first 14 passes, Green Bay said, man, the hell with this. I'll score them 21 to nothing in the second half. Goff came back to me and Jared Goff, and that was the end of the opportunity for Detroit to win that football game against Green Bay. Goff finished 13 of 22 in the second half with an interception and finished the game 26 of 36 for 264 yards. So it's good to see. Look, there's not any questions for Green Bay as far as the offensive side of the ball. Aaron Rodgers is still the elite of the elite in terms of quarterbacks is concerned. I don't care what his thoughts and feelings are about Green Bay. I mean, the man is still up there at the top two or three quarterbacks in the league still. Going into this season, that's not going to change, barring injury. 
Um, Aaron Jones is still one of the more versatile running backs who can run the football, who can catch the ball coming out of the backfield. This virgin's, this generation's Roger Craig. I'm not going to go that far, but he has those same type of skills. The Packers have a number one receiver in Devontae Adams, which showed again the chemistry, the relationship, the on-field chemistry and relationship that he has with Aaron Rodgers is working beautifully. That should only continue to flourish and get better. The other Packer receivers, again, not relying on just one guy, but spreading the wealth is only going to uh, make that offense more potent and more um, make it stronger as the uh, season goes on. So there's nothing wrong. The offensive line can get a a little bit better, but there's nothing wrong with the offense for the Packers, even though they laid an egg against... um, against New Orleans. You knew that eventually those guys were going to come around. They're way too talented to play like they did against New Orleans on a consistent basis or even come close to the effort and to the performance that they had against the New Orleans Saints. Fluke, nothing more than a fluke. The defense for the Packers, which is still a work in progress because, you know, Green Bay's defense so far has given up seven. That's right, seven touchdown passes through its first six quarters of the season. Now, the Packers finished with 12 total QB pressures, and they have just 17 through two weeks, with 13 of those coming Monday night against the Detroit Lions. So when the competition gets harder, when you're speaking about next Sunday night, them playing at San Francisco, then they go ahead to Pittsburgh, and then at Cincinnati, at Cincinnati, at Chicago, Washington. Then you're speaking about at Arizona with Kyler Murray, at Kansas City with Patrick Mahomes, and then they come back to uh, play Seattle with Russell Wilson. Hey, man, you better go ahead and see what you can do when you're playing the netball fences like Washington and Chicago, a young a young quarterback in Joe Burrow with Cincinnati, and still, as I mentioned before, a offense which is still being under construction with Pittsburgh. You better, the, the uh, Packers defense better, you know, figure out some things under over that four-game stretch before as I mentioned before, Arizona, Kansas City, and Seattle. So, you know, th- those are just some of the games that I'm thinking about. Those are just some of the games that I'm talking about. Those are some of the games that caught my eye the first early on in the uh, um, in week two for the uh, for the NFL season or the NFL weekend. But uh, there's more. That's right, y'all. You know, there's more. <laughs> Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Speaking about what's happening in the NFL Week 2. A lot of good games. The Sunday night football game between Kansas City and Baltimore was absolutely fantastic. Lamar Jackson doing everything that he could to save Baltimore from an 0-2 start. 
mentioned it before, mentioned it plenty of times. Lamar Jackson is never going to be Tom Brady. Lamar Jackson is never going to be Drew Brees. Lamar Jackson is never going to be able to do now what he's doing in his mid to late 30s, even early 30s. But as long as you have this weapon, which is Lamar Jackson, the superb uber athlete to go along with his ever improving passing skills to go along with his high intelligence in terms of playing the quarterback position at an NFL level that you just do what you need to do to win football games man if it means him running a lot then go ahead and have him run a lot if it means you know a situation where he does a jump pass for a touchdown go ahead and have him do that type of stuff he's unorthodox he's unique and it's great to see uh, Harbaugh, the coach of Baltimore, go ahead and let Lamar Jackson be Lamar Jackson along with the offensive coordinator, Greg Roman, who puts those game plans together. Lamar is never again going to be able to consistently pass for 300 yards. He's never going to be asked on a consistent basis to throw the football 40 to 40, 45 times. That's not what he does best. His attributes, his strengths in terms of him being an NFL MVP at the youngest, one of the youngest NFL MVPs in the history of the game and being one of the elite quarterbacks of the game and the reason why he's going to be getting a fat contract whenever they go ahead and decide to get it done is of the uniqueness of him as a quarterback. He's he's the new age, he's the new wave, he's the new generation of Randall Cunningham and Michael Vick and Steve Young and all those guys put together, just taking it to a higher level. And against the Kansas City football team on Sunday night, he did just that. Now, it helped the fact that, uh, you know, Kansas City made a couple of a bad decisions. Mahomes threw a horrible interception, really bad interception, which gave Baltimore a great field opportunity. And, of course, the clincher, which is Edwards Alaire fumbling the football near the end of the game as Kansas City was going in for a field goal attempt. So Kansas City, if you're a Kansas fan of Kansas City, that's not really something where you should be, you know, be too upset about. Doesn't matter. They don't win uh, football championships in the regular season. So one loss, week two, Kansas City will get better. My main concern, if you're a Kansas City football fan, is that defense. That defense has not really gotten any better and you're going to be relying on Kansas City to score a lot of points. You're going to be relying on Patrick Mahomes to do a lot of things to uh, add a freshener to the stench, which is the Kansas City defense. How long is Mahomes going to be able to do that, especially if you're talking about in the game of football where injuries happen all the time. But really a good victory for Baltimore moving forward here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us again. Spoke about the New Orleans Saints laying an egg against the Carolina Panthers. A lot of 2-0 teams. That might be a little bit of a surprise. The Las Vegas Raiders going across the country playing the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers and getting a win. The Arizona Cardinals going ahead and doing what they need to do. Fortunate, yes, but 2-0 is 2-0. Kyler Murray still performing miracles out there on the football field, especially with the responsibility that he's been given to run the offense, to make that offense work, to put up the points, to put up the numbers that he has so far. Very impressive. I don't know exactly how long this is going to last. I don't know, you know, just doing plays that look like they were drawn up in the sandlot 
and then uh, went to the line of scrimmage and then do some things like in your local flag football league. I don't know how long that's going to last, especially if you're speaking about Murray's such slight a build. I don't know, you know, what the responsibility that he has. I don't know if he's going to be able to play at that high level for the amount of time that the Cardinals need him to play. If you take a look at that roster, you take a look at what he does on offense. There is no replacement for Kyler Murray in that offense if he goes ahead and gets injured. Cliff Kingsbury doesn't have a Kyler Murray in training, a Kyler Murray light, a Kyler Murray Jr. to uh, go ahead and try to emulate some of the things that Murray does on a consistent basis on offense. So if you can keep Murray upright, hey, you know, there might be a chance, but, you know, the defense for Arizona came back down the earth. You knew that uh, you knew that Chandler Jones wasn't going to get another five sacks in a game, but uh, Delvin Cook had a nice game against that Arizona defense and uh, something that they need to clear up moving forward. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Tennessee got a nice bounce-back victory over Seattle. Derrick Henry reminding everybody that he's Derrick Henry. Derrick Henry, as I mentioned before, and speaking about Lamar Jackson and long-term stock in Lamar Jackson might be a little bit shaky if you're going to be comparing him to the other elite quarterbacks in his class right now, other elite quarterbacks in the game right now. Derrick Henry, of course, the elite, one of the elite, major elite running backs in the game. As much as that guy touches the football, as much as that guy carries the load on that offense, that guy is going to fall off a cliff and he's going to fall off a cliff very quickly. I can't see Derrick Henry coming anywhere close to the production that he's putting up right now. Not even a fraction by the time he hits 28, 29, or 30. But you know what? Hey, the regime, the coaching regime and everything, you, you might as well try to get the most out of you, the most out of a Derrick Henry as you can, as long as you're coach. Remember, you're, evaluated on X's and O's. So if the best option is to run Derrick Henry and to give Derrick Henry the ball and have Derrick Henry have touches and the amount of time, the amount of uh, opportunities that he's got, you better go ahead and do it. Because if you go ahead and try to save him because you want him to see, you want him to still be productive when he's in his thirties, that'll be fine. That's a good plan. The only problem is you won't be there to coach him when he's in his 30s because you would have been fired five years before that because of a win-loss record that is not going to be acceptable with the management. If you're Mike Munchak, I mean, if you're um, uh, the coaching staff at Tennessee, man, go ahead and uh, use and abuse him and get them victories and do the best that you can to get those victories with Tennessee. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us quickly running down some of the things in week two of the NFL, running them down very quickly because it's damn near close to 12 o'clock on a Tuesday and I've got to get some sleep. So some of the other games that kind of uh, helped my attention, which kind of got my attention, going back to the theme of teams that were contenders, teams that were supposed to be that are supposed to be contenders for the uh, 2021 season. The Cleveland Browns handled business at home against Houston, winning 33-21. Not the type of performance maybe that you would have wanted, but hell, you still won the game. Baker Mayfield had a very nice game, went 19-21, 213 yards, went 10 for 10 after a first-half interception. He injured his non-throwing shoulder while he was making the tackle on the play, got up and... Uh, Perform well. Nick Chubb went for 95 yards on 11 carries, a 26-yard TD run late in the fourth quarter that really puts in separation between those two teams, Houston and Cleveland. Uh, Chubb extended his touchdown scoring streak to eight games. 
Defense, still a work in progress with a whole bunch of new starters. Tyrod Taylor. <laughs> I mean, we're letting Tyrod Taylor look like, I don't know, Lamar Jackson. Uh, before he got injured, just before halftime, the man, Tyrod Taylor, 10 for 11, 125 yards and a touchdown. Defense allowed four for four third down conversions on a 16-play, 75-yard touchdown drive by the Texans to make it 21-14 with 11.32 left in the game. Some things that have to be uh, straightened out for the defense. Again, we're speaking about some of these elite teams and we're focusing mainly on the defense, the offense, while if you take a look at what's happening in Buffalo, if you take a look the first couple of weeks with Cleveland, okay, maybe not at the same type of uh, consistency and the same type of excellence as the year before, but you know Mayfield is going to be Mayfield. As long as those guys can remain relatively healthy, you know that the Kansas City offense is going to be fine. You know that the New England, excuse me, that the um, uh, Cleveland Browns offense is going to be fine. You know that uh, the Buffalo Bills offense is going to be fine. It's going to be all about the defense. It's going to be all about the defense. May Mayfield has started well the first two games. He's completing 81% of his passes. He's averaging 10 yards per pass. He's averaging 267 yards a game. Nick Chubb is averaging 7 yards per carry on 26 carries through two games. Has three touchdowns. One of the leaders in rushing so far in the NFL. Now, Jarvis Landry, the wide receiver, is going to have to be put on IR with a MCL sprain in his left knee. There's no sign of return for Odell Beckham Jr. So moving forward, the offense is probably going to have to find some new ways to uh, matriculate the ball down the field than just handing the ball off to Kasim Hunt and to Nick Chubb all the time. But, uh, you know, one of the things about Cleveland is that they're, they're deep, they have a strong offensive line, and that they need to rely on the running game to win football games. They can do just that. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Quickly, let me get out of here with this segment. Speaking about the Dallas Cowboys' victory over the Los Angeles Chargers up there in L.A., down there in L.A., across the country there in L.A., across the globe in L.A., 20-17. Greg Zerline's 56-yard field goal at time expired was the clincher, gave Dallas the victory. Much, much, much better in terms of Dallas the balance on offense. Team rushed for 198 yards on 31 attempts, which is six yards per carry. And Dak Prescott won 23 of 27 for 237 yards. No touchdowns, one interception. But he was one of the driving factors to set up the game-winning field goal to have Dallas win that game. Totally Pollard, the running back for Dallas, is now emerging as the featured back, as he ran for 100 yards on the ground in 13 attempts, Ezekiel Elliott had a touchdown, rushing touchdown. He gained 71 yards on 16 attempts. There you go. More balance, more efficiency. Guess what? An all-around positive effect for the Cowboys on offense when you do that. They scored two touchdowns on two of their three red zone opportunities. They had 13 first downs in the first quarter, which is a team record. And most importantly, you get that defense off the field for Dallas, even though, or you keep that defense off the field for Dallas when you're not having Dak Prescott throw the ball 45, 50, 55 times. You run the clock, you get first down, you wear out the defense, you wear out the defensive line. You know, you let the big dogs on the offensive line eat because it's always better more preferable for the offensive lineman to run block than it is to pass block. So you get those guys in a good frame of mind. You get that mentality 
to dominate. So a lot of good things go ahead when you have balance on your offense. And again, Tony Pollard is a capable running back and Ezekiel Elliott, while he might not be the running back from two or three years ago or at a time when he was regarded one of the elite running backs in the NFL, he still can be a guy that can be quite potent in this offense. So yeah, the defense, you want to keep them off the field, but you know, hey, they're getting better. (laughs) At least they're getting better. Mike Nolan's defense last year stunk out loud, but uh, this year, man, I tell you, they're, they're, they're getting better. And you got to remember on defense against the Rams, against the Chargers, the Cowboys were missing three other starters. For the Chargers, I thought firing Anthony Lynn would solve all the Chargers' problems in terms of losing games late that they should have won. Wasn't that all Anthony Lynn's fault? Everybody was talking about how bad his play calling and decision making was. Might have been, but, um, you know, as we see with the new regime for the Chargers, it seems like they're the same old Chargers when it comes to execution, when it comes to uh, uh, doing some things down the stretch that can uh, give them the opportunity to win football games. They were penalized 12 times for 99 yards. Two of the penalties cost them touchdowns, and six of the penalties took away first downs. Justin Herbert threw an interception in the end zone, and they missed a field goal at the end of the first half. So, I don't know. Is Anthony Lynn still hanging around? Is Anthony Lynn still the coach? So seem like they're still doing the same shit with the new coach as they were doing with the old coach. So, man, there were some good games in the NFL, but my really my focus was on college football. I was in for college football, and um, I'm licking my chops right now to go ahead and talk about it. So I'm going to get funky with James Brown, and then I'm going to come back in college football. I'm going to be talking about it. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Remember, at the end of this bad boy, I'm going to be giving you my thoughts and opinions about a Netflix documentary that, I don't know, I guess it's already out, right? The relationship between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. I read the uh, book, Blood Brothers talking about that uh, relationship between those two icons, between those two historical greatness of heroes. And I want to uh, have Professor Wallace myself go ahead and uh, give you my thoughts and opinions about the relationship between two of my all-time heroes, along with Otis Redding and such. So uh, that'll be at the end of this podcast. But right now, for this segment, I'm going to be speaking a little bit about what was happening in college football this past weekend. And uh had an opportunity to watch Alabama and Florida. I'll be talking about that a little bit later. Had the opportunity to watch a little bit of Cincinnati and Indiana. Had an opportunity to watch a little bit of Oklahoma and Nebraska. I'll be talking about that. Had the opportunity 
to watch some of the Tulsa-Ohio State game. I'll be speaking about that. Even had a little opportunity every now and then to uh, check and see what was happening between Clemson and Georgia Tech. I'll be speaking about that. That game lasted, what, about 15 years after all of those uh, rain delays and lightning rains and all those type of things. So I'll be speaking about that. I'll be speaking about it in the context. I was mainly speaking about Ohio State, Clemson, Oklahoma, watching the games and even watching the Alabama-Florida game, even though... On my last podcast, I don't know if it was my last podcast or the podcast before that, that uh, I made the proclamation that uh, Ohio, that um, Alabama was the most dominant team in North American sports, team sports. Still stand by that, explain why, my reasons for that later. But uh, just watching Alabama play and then uh, watching Clemson and Ohio State and um, these programs that were supposed to be dominating, Oklahoma, that was supposed to be dominating. And I just came to the conclusion like you did and like your your husband did and your wife did and your kids did. And when you were at work today listening to your homeboys talk about what was happening in college football over the weekend and they were sitting there talking about the ineptitude of offense of Clemson and Oklahoma playing down to his competition and Florida beating up uh, Alabama on the offensive and defensive line and Ohio State still not having any type of pass rush or any type of real defense and you came to the same conclusion that I did. You and your homeboys and your homegirls and your kids, you came to the same conclusion that I did. You know, in the year 2021 in college football, for the first time this century, hey man, there might not be a dominant team in college football or a dominant couple of teams in college football. What was set in stone before for it seemed like forever, especially since the college football playoffs have started, where it's like, okay, we know Alabama's going to be there. Okay, because of the conference that they play in, we know Clemson's going to be there. Okay, we know that head and shoulders, Ohio State had more talent than anybody else in Michigan and Harbaugh. They're struggling, and they seem to have some type of bugaboo when it comes up to playing against Ohio State. So we know Ohio State's going to be right there. We know that another team from the SEC is going to be there. And then we know that the Pac-12 is going to be left out. I mean, all of these rituals of consistency in which who's going to be doing what, which teams are going to be dominant, which teams are the overwhelming favorites to make it to the college football playoffs for the first time in a long time, man, there might be a real opportunity where that ain't going to happen. Now, again, I still think that the Alabama football program is the most dominant team currently in North American sports until further notice. Yeah, their victory over Florida was tight, but guess what? They're now on a 17-game winning streak. They've won 32 consecutive games against teams from the SEC East division. In fact, their last loss was, what, about 10 years ago to uh, South Carolina? Last time Alabama lost a game was January 7, 2019 in the national championship game against Clemson. They are the most dominant team in terms of winning, in terms of success in sports, in team sports in North America. And I'm talking about real sports. Don't give me some bullshit about, hey, you know what, the the, uh, uh, the gymnastics team or the golf team or the lacrosse team in Rochester, New York, at this high school has been dominating for years. Or don't give me some mountain union of Division Three football. I'm talking about for real. In terms of uh, Division One high-quality sports and then professional sports, I'm speaking about upon that text that I'm going to testify that the Alabama Crimson Tide football team over the last couple of years have been the most dominant team in 
15 sports. Not over the last 10, not over the last 15, not over the last 20. I'm talking about over the last couple of years. You take a look at team sports in this country during that time. It's all about parity, man. We don't, we don't have since the, what was the last dynasty that we can think of here? When we're speaking about the NHL, when we're speaking about the NBA, when we're speaking about uh, the NFL, when we're speaking about Major League Baseball, when we're speaking about college football and basketball, when was the last dynasty? When was the last uh, dominant team, shall we say? I guess maybe you could, in the NBA, what was the uh, Golden State Warriors in the NFL, it had the opportunity to be the Kansas City football team until they lost to the... um, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but before that, it was the New England Patriots who had their reign of dominance for over almost two decades in hockey. I have no idea because I really don't fall in the sport. And in baseball, you've got the uh, LA Dodgers. So if you take a look at those quote-unquote quasi-dynasties, pseudo-dynasties, wannabe dynasties, almost dynasties in those sports, and then you add them up into the excellence of Alabama in football, I still say that, hey, you know what? Alabama football still there. Kansas City, yeah, they've gone 26-6 and six over the past couple of years. They've been to two Super Bowl appearances, but guess what? Because of a bad offensive line, they got their asses whooped by the uh, Tampa Tom Buccaneers. On top of that, they also had to uh, go up against two offensive, two uh, coordinators, offensive and defensive, in Byron Leftwich and Todd Bowles, who ran circles around all the coaches for the Kansas City champions. Used to be champions, even though BNME uh, is a worthy opponent for those guys. He did not stand a chance, especially with some of the cars that were dealt to him, a bad offensive line, to go up against the defensive excellence of a coach in Todd Bowles and then the young, up-and-coming offensive mind of Byron Leftwich, who both those guys really didn't get a chance to uh, get an opportunity to become head coaches in the NFL. I digress. I'll speak about that later. So Kansas City was right there of becoming a dynasty, but they lost. They lost that Super Bowl. They got blown out in that Super Bowl. And you're taking a look at Kansas City and then comparing their success to Alabama. Then, hey, you know what? Alabama won that national championship. Alabama, 17-game winning streak. Alabama, head and shoulders above everybody else. Alabama, Kansas City, I think is close. But at the bottom line, in my opinion, bottom line, because Wanda Wallace said so, I think that um, Alabama has the more, the, the bigger argument for them being the most dominant team in team sports in this country. NBA, look, the last two seasons, we've had the LA Lakers and the Milwaukee Bucks win championships, the best records in the NBA last season with the Philadelphia 76ers and the Utah Jazz. The Milwaukee Bucks were the number three seed. They barely beat the number two seed, Brooklyn Nets, who many people thought that was going to be the next dynasty in coming when they acquired Kevin Durant and James Harden and Kyrie Irving. They thought this was going to be the start of a dynasty. Could be, but for one year, it didn't happen because of injury and because of Giannis and Dinokupo. Many people thought because of Giannis that the Milwaukee Bucks were going to be that team over a short period of time that could really have an argument when it comes to debating who's the most dominant team in team sports in North America between Alabama and any team in the NBA. That didn't happen because of Milwaukee losing to Miami in the bubble before coming back and winning themselves that championship. The Los Angeles Lakers with LeBron and Anthony Davis had an opportunity to stake that claim, but because of injury and age and other things, they didn't uh, capitalize on that opportunity. So again, you take a look at the NBA, no team, that I can think of over the last couple of years has been as dominant 
as Alabama. And look, man, I know you're sitting up there talking about, wait a minute, man, we're talking apples to oranges. What do you think? You think the Lakers or the Bucks or anybody else should go undefeated during the regular season and then not lose in the playoffs, man? What the fuck are you talking about? Apples and oranges, apples and oranges. Okay, when you're going to be debating based on records alone, well, then yes, of course, in college football, you only play 13, 14 games in the season compared to now, what is what is it going to be? 19, 20 games in the NFL, 82 games plus in the NBA, 162 games plus in Major League Baseball, 80, 82 games plus in hockey. Yeah, I understand. I'm not saying that Alabama is the most dominant team in North America just based on records alone. I'm just speaking about dominance over the competition the fact that now people are losing their mind because Alabama was severely tested and, and came close to losing, that just shows you how dominant Alabama has been over the past couple of years. So that's what I'm talking about. The L.A. Dodgers in baseball, yeah. They won the World Series last season in a COVID-shortened season, and before that, they uh, won, what, 90-something games? The record over this period, period of time when Alabama was winning championships has been one. Uh, been 245 and 127 the Dodgers have won 66 percent of their game but again they underachieved once they got to the playoffs by losing to the Washington Nationals then in a COVID shortened year winning the World Series and we'll see what happens moving on in this regular season for baseball but again we're we are in the age in sports in a parody and I guess in a small way College football is following along the same path that the NBA and the NHL and Major League Baseball and the NFL are traveling right now in terms of, yeah, okay, Tampa Bay is the favorite. You could say after two weeks, if you really want to go, if you really want to go ahead and say that right now, that Tampa Bay is the best team in the NFL. Are you going to uh, put all your money and your wife's and your kid's mortgage and your kid's uh, college tuition on the fact that it, Tampa Bay is going to win the Super Bowl? Sure, the Brooklyn Nets, if they come back with all their players healthy, Harden, KD, and Kyrie are going to be the favorites to win the NBA championship. Are you sure you can go ahead and do something like that? Yeah, it looks like the Dodgers, especially with the acquisition of Trey Turner and Matt Scherzer from my Washington Nationals, look like the overwhelming favorites over maybe the Tampa Bay Rays in uh, baseball. Are you going to be able to put all of your chips, are you going to be willing to put all of your coin, all of your chicken on the table to go ahead and make that uh, make that bet, to make that proclamation? The deal over the past couple of years has been the Alabama Crimson Tide head and shoulders above everybody else. Yes, they've had Clemson. Yes, they've had Ohio State. Yes, they've had Georgia. Yes, they've had other uh, contenders to their throne. But yet and still, in a dominant fashion, it has been Alabama, 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 Alabama. So I'm going to roll tide until further notice and go with Alabama, keeping up with what I said before, Alabama football being still the most dominant team in North American team sports. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So Glad that you could be with us. So, speaking about college football, going into the season, the teams that were supposed to be dominant, they were the usual suspects. Preseason top five, you had Alabama, you had Oklahoma. Many people thought because of the fact that Spencer Rattler was coming back to Oklahoma that they were the 
they should have been more of the preseason number one. But if you check the AP, the top five were Alabama, Oklahoma, Clemson, Ohio State, and Georgia. Now take a look at them four teams. Take a look at four of those five teams, namely Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, and Oklahoma. And I really even shouldn't add Alabama here. People are just losing their minds almost because of the game against Florida on Saturday. But I'll, I'll go ahead. I'll play that game. I'll go ahead. I'll, uh, I'll you know, I'll... I'll uh, go ahead and, and, and play with you. Four of those five college football programs, as I mentioned before, Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama, Oklahoma, those four teams, they're responsible for 20 of the 28 playoff berths in the first seven season. And Georgia played in the national championship game in 2017, and they got there by beating Oklahoma in the Rose Bowl with Baker Mayfield. Remember with him as being the uh, quarterback of that team? The 2021 season, again, could mark the first time since the first college football playoffs in 2014 where the four-team field doesn't include at least three of these programs. Speaking about Ohio State, Alabama, Clemson, Oklahoma. Now, you can sit there and say, well, wait a minute, Wendell. Before we start you know, speaking about a Final Four that includes Coastal Carolina, Cincinnati, BYU, and shit, I don't know, uh, Florida. Before we start, well, not Florida. Before we start, before we start going down that route, let's, let's remember that if the season ended today, that Alabama and Oklahoma would be the top two seeds along with Oregon and Georgia for the final two seeds of the 14 playoffs. And, oh, did I, did I uh, forget to tell you that Georgia, again, playing for the championship in 2017, and Oregon playing for the championship have already played in the championship game. So when we're speaking about new blood, when we're speaking about change, when we're speaking about parity, when we're speaking about, you know, something new, it seems, again, with Alabama, Oklahoma, Georgia, and Oregon, we're still speaking about the bluest of the blue bloods still being favored to win the national championship or favorite to be playing for the national championship. Okay. All right. All right. But take a look at it. Take a look at what's going on right now outside of possibly Alabama. I'm telling you, man, there's no dominant teams. The ACC, it used to be Clemson's world and everybody else was just paying rent. It's not like that anymore so far this season, through three weeks this season. Who knows, man, because of the talent that they have and because of the weakness of the conference that, you know, maybe I'm overreacting and saying that Clemson is in a little bit of trouble. But I'm telling you, man, with that offense, with that offensive line, hey, for the first time in a while, the North Carolinas and the Virginia Techs, and I'm not going to even say Miami, but there's some teams that actually have a chance, actually have a realistic shot of winning that conference or at least winning their conference championship. You take a look at the Big Ten, what used to be Ohio State's play playground. Now you take a look at how weak that run defense is. Now you take a look at the inexperienced and the freshmen that are starting now in the secondary. Now you take a look at the disrepair and disarray that has been the defense and the defensive coordinator and who's going to be calling the plays. And you take a look at the inconsistencies of the offense or you take a look at the inconsistencies of the quarterback. All of a sudden now, you take a look at Penn State, you take a look at Wisconsin, you take a look at Michigan State, you take a look at Michigan. All of a sudden now, those teams have a true realistic shot of believing that they can go ahead and usurp up in the uh, Ohio State reign of terror on the Big Ten at least for one more year. Same thing with the Big 12. Yeah, you know what? Oklahoma, who seems every year under Lincoln Riley loses a game which they should win. I mean, they're susceptible and vulnerable this year more than ever. 
all of those conferences, the Big 12, the Big 10, and the ACC, we could be looking at all of those teams having new conference champions. Now, you can sit there and say, are you willing to bet on that? Are you willing to bet on that? That's not the point, man. The point is the fact that finally we have something where it's a storyline. It's something that's intriguing. It's something that's real. It's something that, I don't know, could actually happen. Just think about it, man. In the last couple of years, could you really say that with a straight face? That, hey, man, you know what? In the ACC, there could be some real competition for, for Clemson. Could you say that without getting gonged off the gong show? Could you say that without being laughed all out of the, uh, out of the out of Showtime at the Apollo? Of course not. There ain't nobody up there was going to believe you with a brain in their head. Even people stupid enough to vote for the clown that we had in office for the last four years aren't dumb enough to believe some stupidity for the past couple of years that Clemson was actually going to have some competition in college football in the ACC. Well, hold on. If you voted, well, if you voted for the fucking idiot that was in the office four years ago, well then maybe you are really that stupid. You have to be really that stupid. But outside of them, I mean, we really are looking at the possibility. I mean, you would get laughed at if you said that, I mean, even Michiganders, even the most dedicated drinking the Kool-Aid Michiganders the last couple of years didn't give Michigan a shot against Ohio State. And that's where they were clamoring for Jim Harbaugh to do something or get lost. Oklahoma, the same thing. When chips came, when, when, when the chickens came home to roost, you really didn't think Matt Campbell in Iowa State was going to pose some real threat to Oklahoma, did you? I mean, it was almost a situation, well, if it ain't Texas, and Texas has been down since Vince, Vince Young walked out of that door, that uh, and Colt McCoy walked out of that door, that uh, there really hasn't been too much competition for Oklahoma in the, pack, in the uh, Big 12. So you're speaking over the past couple of years, and even before that, five, six, seven years now that it's just been pure and utter dominance out of those three teams in those conferences. At least now. Seriously, if you take a look at those teams the way they're playing right now, you could take a look at the Iowa State, even though they lost to Iowa, and I've always thought they were a little bit overrated in terms of them being a top 10, top 15 program. But they, they, they really have a shot. You take a look at someone like a Penn State, they, out of anybody have a real shot when they go ahead and they go up to the big house and they play um, uh, Ohio State. I mean, these are some teams now that have a realistic chance and whether they pull it off or not, it's almost like a situation. If I'm James Franklin or if I'm uh, Mac Brown or if I'm any of these guys, I take a look at my players in the eyes and I say, look guys, let's be for real. If we don't get these guys now, I don't know when the cycle will turn around to when we will be able to really compete against these guys. If we can't get Clemson, if you're in the ACC and you can't get Clemson now, if you're Virginia Tech, if you're North Carolina, and you can't get Clemson this season, when? Because DJU is only going to get better. I'm quite sure they're going to recruit some better offensive linemen. I'm quite sure Dabo's going to go out and get some receivers and some running backs who he can groom. The defense is always going to be stout. Are you wishing and hoping and begging that offensive coordinator Tony Elliott gets a job gets a job at USC or somewhere else? And maybe that pipeline of great quarterbacks that started with Deshaun Watson will end? I, I, what are you waiting for? Because, again, if you don't get them this year, Mac, you might as well go back to ESPN and start uh, analyzing games. Because if North Carolina ain't going to get them now with a, with a first-round NFL quarterback and a team that's coming off winning 10 games the season before, if not now, when?
Same thing with Michigan. If you're Jim Harbaugh, you can't get Ohio State now. James Franklin, if you can't get Ohio State down, you might as well just go ahead and just go out west to USC and beg and plead those guys to give you that job. Iowa, this cycle where you have a veteran squad, fourth and fifth year guys who are playing, if you're not going to get them now, when are you going to get them? Because Quinn Ewers is coming right up along the pipeline. And regardless of what happens to Ohio State this year, they ain't going to fall off the map in terms of recruiting. They're still going to recruit nationally. They're still going to get five-star recruits nationally. They're still going to get five-star skill players year after year after year. So in this year of transition, Iowa, Penn State, Michigan, possibly Michigan State, if not now, when? Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So the ratings, when you speak about it, I should also throw Georgia in there in the SEC when you're speaking about Alabama. If not now, when? Again, Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about what's happening, what's going down in college football over this past weekend, speaking about the parody, which is college football right now, getting in line, following the same tune, singing the same song, dancing the same jig as the NFL and the NBA and Major League Baseball and NHL when it comes to parody, when it comes to no dynasties, when it comes to no dominant teams for real. Still thinking that Alabama, if you're going to ask who is the most dominant team in team sports in North America, and you take a look at the best teams in the NBA, the best teams in college football, the best teams in college basketball, the best teams in the NHL, the best teams in Major League Baseball, and you line them up and you line up their competition and you're looking at dominance and you're looking at... uh, you know, um, who's better? I still go with the Alabama Crimson Tide, but in this world of parody, in this world of, hey, you know what? David actually has a chance. Might be a slingshot in hell's chance, but at least it's a lot better than it's been for the last five, six, seven years. When you're speaking about the preseason rankings and you're talking about Alabama being number one in Oklahoma and Ohio State and Clemson. I was always one of these guys who said, okay, like take for instance Alabama. Are the reloaders going to be as good as those who played for Alabama the last couple of years? Are the reloaders at Clemson? Because when you're in an elite program, right, and you're if you're at the stature of Ohio State and in Oklahoma, and at Clemson, isn't that what you do? You just reload. You don't rebuild. So if we're reloading in Clemson and the Buckeyes and the Sooners are bringing their bringing in their new reloaders who are going to be first-round draft picks, who are going to be All-Americans, who are going to be conference all-conference players, who are going to be conference of the year's players in their skill position of quarterback or running back or wide receiver, the players who are going to be eschewed in to uh, be that player who's going to be you know, in contention for the Heisman Trophy. So we're going to be bringing in those type of guys to Clemson, Ohio State, Michigan, excuse me, Clemson, Ohio State, and Oklahoma and such. Are we truly, truly certain that these are going to be the guys? And you can say, well, based off of past history, yeah, because based off of reputation, right? Alabama won a national championship going 13-0 and last season. They had eight players from that team go in the first or second round of the last uh, year's draft. They had to replace two first-round wide receivers, one being a Heisman Trophy winner and Devonta Smith. 
Oh, by the way, did I also mention that Smith also won the uh, Maxwell Award and the Blitnikoff Award for the best wide receiver? Mac Jones won the Davey O'Brien Award and the Johnny United's Golden Arm Award. Najee Harris, the running back, won the Doak Walker Award. Offensive lineman Alex Leatherwood and Landon Dickinson won the Outland and Remington Trophy. Did I mention all of those awards? Did I mention all of that dominance? Did I mention all of that individual glory? Also, other winners, offensive line won the John Moore Award for the best offensive line in college football, and offensive coordinator Steve Sarkeesian won the Broyles Award and got him an opportunity to uh, coach and apply for the University of Texas football gig. So we're, we're, we're speaking about a team in Alabama. Six players were named to various All-American teams. So it's like, oh, don't worry about it. And, and after losing all of that talent, losing all of that talent, it was like, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. We'll just bring in all the – the replacements will be good enough to uh, have Alabama be preseason number one. Really? Okay. Now, the first two games, Miami, Mercer, oh, okay. It <laughs> looked like those guys that don't miss a beat and this, that, and the other. It seemed on their first road test of the season, the Swamp, Florida, it was like, wait a minute now. The Emperor, the emperor might not wear clothes. When it comes to their dominance, we'll have to go ahead and see. But it's like, we were just so cavalier. I was one of them. I mean, I had my questions, but it was like, well, it's Nick Saban and well, it's Alabama. And well, 24-7 recruits give these high marks in terms of this is a great recruiting class and how many five-star recruits. And again, we talk about uh, Jalen Hurts, the Tua Tungavailoa, the Mac Jones. Why not then the simple uh, torch, uh, passing of the torch to Bryce Young and we spoke about the running backs and we spoke about the wide receivers and we spoke about all these players who were number one draft picks and don't worry in a couple of years their replacements will be number one draft picks and then their their replacements will be number one draft picks on and on and on so I believed it man I drank the Kool-Aid and I'm still drinking the Kool-Aid but I think we got ahead of ourselves when it was like oh yeah the 2021 team with all of these new faces they'll just dominate the same way that the 2020 team did we uh I uh, might have to step back on that one. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The Clemson Tigers of 2020, they finished last uh, season 10-2 and two overall, number three in the final national rankings. I mean, they had a generational great quarterback, one of the greatest quarterbacks of the last 10, 15 years in college football, and Trevor Lawrence, who was named ACC Player of the Year and finished second in voting for the Heisman Trophy. They had a team leading rusher in Travis Etienne, who was a consensus All-American, all-purpose back. There was Amari Rogers, who was the team's leading receiver and was named first-team all-conference. Four players were drafted in the first and second round of that draft. So Clemson lost a lot of players, including their uh, highly rated skill players and a generational great quarterback in Trevor Lawrence. Ohio State, runners-up in the national championship game last season. They lost... Justin Fields, who led the Big Ten Conference in passing yards and passing touchdowns and was named the Conference Offensive Player of the Year. Uh, Trey, Trey Sermon was their team's leading rusher and saved their bacon in, in the Big Ten tri- Championship game against uh, Northwestern by rushing for 331 yards. The offensive lineman Wyatt Davis was a consensus All-American in the Conference Offensive Lineman of the Year. He's no longer with the team. And on defense, the team fe- featured consensus All-American quarterback Sean Wade, who was the conference defensive player of the year along with Pete Warner who was also named first team all-conference and led the team in tackles but then again those guys are gone but it's like hey 
It's Ohio State. No big deal. They have a number one recruiting class. We'll just go ahead and plug in these guys who got very little playing time, maybe on the exception of special teams, and we'll just plug these guys right in, and everything will be A-OK. Well, it's not A-OK. And these players are not reaching the expectations, the preseason expectations of being one of the three or four or five best teams in the country. And I guess we could sit here right now and say, surprise, surprise. But then again, when I read you all of those players and all of that talent that was lost from teams like Clemson and Ohio State and such, you can say, oh, well, you know what? I guess, you know, the signs were there. We just didn't know it would be you know, because of the excellence, because of college football being the nature of the beast that it is to where, look, you are going to be recycling players two, three, four years, every two or three or four years, that with that consistency of greatness that Ohio State and Clemson showed throughout, you know, a seven, eight-year tenure, that this would just continue. Well, so far, in three games, three games only, so far, it hasn't been happening. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us, Clemson. Like who didn't they beat? Didn't they beat Georgia Tech last uh, year? Something like two hundred and six to five, or some nonsense like that. And throughout the, I I remember watching that game because I'm a masochist, and I remember watching that game, and it was just something because um, Dan Orlovsky was doing the play-by-play, and as Georgia Tech was getting their ass whooped, (laughs) first by Trevor Lawrence, then by DJU. And then by the uh, then by the freshman walk on who they got off the freshman team, and then after he dominated Georgia Tech, the uh, Dabo went to the student section and said, "Hey, anybody here play intramural football? Who plays quarterback and want to throw a couple of touchdowns? Come on down." So it was one of those type of beatdowns that uh, Clemson put on Georgia Tech last year. And Orlowski, after every small, minute inconsequential thing that Georgia Tech did. First and 10, run, hold, you know, they threw the ball for a two-year, two-yard gain. Here's Dan Orlowski. You know, that's huge. That's big. You know, that's a building block right there. Love the fact that those guys aren't quitting. And yeah, they might be getting their ass kicked 63 to nothing right now in the second quarter, but doggone it, you know, we're going to look back on that first down and 10 two-yard completion to make a second down and eight. And we're going to sit there in a couple of years, and that coach is going to say that's going to be the turning point where we're going to have our program at the same level level in Alabama. I love the fact that these guys aren't quitting. I love the fact that these guys are competitive. I love the fact that, you know, this coach has a plan. And this plan isn't going to be uh, an overnight success. This is going to be something that's going to take years to accomplish. If you're a Georgia Tech fan, you have to be patient. But I believe in this coach. This coach had success before when he was coaching at another school in one of the FBSs or one of the lower five conference teams that he was in. But, but now he's at Georgia Tech and doggone it, this guy's a winner and doggone it, this guy's a good man and doggone it, this guy has a wonderful family and doggone it, his kids are awesome and doggone it, his wife's a sweetheart and doggone it, he has discipline and this, that and the other and he's going to turn this program around and oh, how about that? The quarterback just got destroyed by Clemson. He fumbled. Clemson returned it for a touchdown, laughing on the way to the end zone, which now makes the score Georgia Tech down 70 to nothing with four minutes left to go in the first quarter. Hmm. But you know what? I just love the way that you see how that quarterback after he got smashed and he lost the football and Clemson ran it back for a touchdown. Do you notice how, how the quarterback for Georgia Tech kept his head up as he was running toward the sidelines while the other uh, 
while the while Clemson players were laughing at him, that shows me right there that this quarterback, I mean, he might be a youngster, but doggone it, this guy's going to turn into the next uh, Johnny United. This guy is going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread because right now, during this beatdown, you've got to watch this, guys. Don't change the channel. During this beatdown, this is what I'm talking about right here. This is where champions are made. This is where programs, this is where elite programs are built. Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, Dan, 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 stop. Stop bullshitting me. <laughs> Stop bullshitting me. This team sucks. <laughs> this team should not be on the field against Clemson. This team is a piss poor Division One football program. God bless them, but they suck. They have no chance at all. Zero. Zilch. None. Of competing against Clemson. Not now. Not next year. Not next decade. Not next century. Never. <laughs> So just stop. Stop it, Dan, please. Well, guess what? That's why Dan Orlowski is doing what he's doing, and that's the reason why this pathet- uh, this chump loser right here named Wendell Wallace is doing what he's doing. Because one year, one season later, 14-8, <laughs> Clemson, uh, Clemson had to sneak by and beat Georgia Tech 14-8 on Saturday. So, yeah, Clemson is still having issues with their offense and their offensive line. Offense has scored two touchdowns in eight quarters against teams from the Power Five Conference. Georgia, excuse me, Clemson had 284 total yards against Georgia Tech on Saturday, right? 284 total yards. Georgia Tech has allowed an average of 287 total yards against Northern Iowa and Kennesaw State. Not exactly, not exactly Iowa, Penn State, or Georgia. DJ Ugale, and one of these days, yes, I am going to, once he starts playing better, I'll actually try to remember his name. Still looks shaky and still looks uncomfortable. Against Georgia Tech, he went 18 for 25, 126 yards, no touchdowns or interceptions. Completed yards per pass attempt, seven. Yards on passes that were completed, the average yards yardage, five. Georgia Tech was allowing 13 yards per pass play coming into the game. DJ's longest completion, 17 yards on a pass out to the running back called it at the line of scrimmage. He never attempted a pass over 20 yards. What are we going to do here, man? What what exactly are we going to do? Because, again, his offensive coordinator is Tony Elliott, who is a damn, damn, damn good offensive coordinator, one of the highest paid offensive coordinators in the game. What are we going to do here? When you have a receiving core that has two reliable receivers who's caught two-thirds of the yardage in receiving and caught half of the completions by DJ, and you have the third receiver, Davis Allen, who's third on the team in receptions with six. And Brandon Galloway has 14 yards total for the season, total for the season, total for the season and several drops. What are we going to do here? When you have Will Shipley, a true freshman, and DJU being the team's main rushers, what are we going to do here? I mean, we can rely on the defense if you clip them. That's fine. They've only allowed 21 points, and seven of those came on an interception return for a touchdown. If you remember that game, the first game of the uh, season against Georgia and against, uh, you know, so far this season, the Clemson defense has, you know, managed just to give up around four yards per play 
against Georgia and Clemson, excuse me, Georgia and uh, Georgia Tech. So you can rely on Clemson's defense, but damn, sooner or later, this offense has to come around. You can't be scoring 14, 10 points against your competition. Now, of course, Dabo knows that. And of course, Tony Elliott knows that. And those guys are much more equipped and experienced and knowledgeable to get this program, to get that offense turned around. They have much more answers to the questions than I'll ever have. So, okay, I will uh, see what's going to happen. If anybody can fix the offensive line for Clemson, I think the two best guys to do that are the head coach and the offensive coordinator who together, I don't know, had built themselves a hell of a dynasty. So I'm not going to sit here and start trying to tell Tony Elliott and Dabo Sweeney how to... um, fix their team. That's that's up to them. They are far more experienced and knowledgeable about that than I'll ever be if I live to be a thousand and go ahead and go to every single Clemson practice that there is. So in Dabo and Tony, Clemson fans should trust. Let them do the work and you shut the fuck up on trying to tell them exactly how to do the things. But uh, next week, man, they play North Carolina State on the road this upcoming Saturday. That could be one of the biggest games of the season for them, especially since they lost to Georgia. You can't lose again. You can't lose again. And if DJ is going to struggle and the offense is going to struggle and you get some fluky points or something like that and you lose a football game 14 to 10 or 17 to 14 like that, you're done. Clemson's reign of making the college football playoffs and competing for the national championship, done, over, finished, finito for the 2021 season. So this game against North Carolina State in late September, for real, no joking, no bullshit, is going to be a huge, huge game for Clemson. Now, after that, you take a look at the remaining schedule, Boston College at Syracuse, at Pittsburgh, Florida State, tumbling, tumbling down, at Louisville, UConn, Wake Forest, at South Carolina. All right, there are some games there where it's kind of like we get past North Carolina State. Hey, we've got some opportunities to uh, go ahead and turn the thing around, but then again, didn't we say that against Clemson? Didn't you say, hey, you know what? We'll get right and we'll get the thing going in a positive direction against Clemson. Excuse me, against um, Georgia Tech. And we saw what happened. Now, you could talk about, well, there was rain delays. And it seemed like those guys were sitting there for 40 days and 40 nights along with Noah and his arc to uh, go ahead and try to play this game. Okay, those are just excuses. And Georgia Tech faced the same elements, same, faced the same situation that uh, Clemson did. So, you know, you can't go ahead and use that as an excuse. Based on the track record, if you're a Clemson fan, it's like the talent is there. And this is not a situation where you take a look at that offensive line and say, well, we just don't have enough talent. Or you take a look at the players you have on offense and you say, well, we just don't have the talent. The talent is there. So, this should be something that, look, we're not saying that all of a sudden the offensive line for Clemson is going to morph into the greatest offensive line that's, you know, that's ever been put on the football field, but shouldn't it be much, much better than this? Shouldn't this quarterback and these wide receivers and these running backs start to gain some type of consistency, gain some type of uh, chemistry, gain some type of positive uh, results from this stuff? Again, Three games in, you know, no one's, but North Carolina State, wow, a big game for Clemson, an ACC foe in late September. 
College football, parody, parody, parody. Gotta love it. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Another preseason top team not playing up to his expectations so far is yours and mine, number 10th, number 10 ranked Ohio State Buckeyes. Yeah, they won the game against Tulsa 41 to 20. And if you didn't watch the game and you knew nothing about the game and you just looked at the final score and you said, they won by three touchdowns, man. What the fuck are you, uh, you know, what, what are you so uh, upset about? Or why, if I'm a Buckeye fan, why should I be all upset? Well, because the score was misleading. The score was 27 to 20 with three minutes left to go in the fourth quarter. That's the reason why you guys should be going, what the hell's going on? Because uh, that was a ball game against a team in Tulsa that should have been to the Harlem Globetrotters, their Washington Generals. Main reason why Ohio State even won the game was because of Trayvon Henderson. Third game of the season for him, third game of his career, broke Archie Griffin's 49-year-old rush, a freshman rushing record by going for 277 yards, ran for three touchdowns, had four carries of at least 31 yards. Speaking of Henderson, including runs of 48, 52, 54 yards to basically put the game out of reach, the 54-yard with the one that said, okay, exhale. And the 52-yard touchdown run came after Tulsa had cut the lead to 2013. Yes, the Tulsa-Washington Generals against the Ohio State Harlem Globetrotters actually was seven was a touchdown away from tying the game in the third and fourth quarter. Y-I-K-E-S, if you're an Ohio State fan thinking about that. C.J. Stroud, the quarterback, continues to be inconsistent at best for the majority of the games. Against Tulsa, 15 for 25, 185 yards, one touchdown, one interception, fumble, lost a fumble. C, C plus, somewhere around there. I'll give so far C.J. Stroud. I've watched him play uh, the majority of the game. I watched all of the uh, Minnesota game, watched all of the Oregon game, and saw bits and pieces of the Tulsa game. He's 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 inconsistent. He's a flipping redshirt freshman. He ain't Trevor Lawrence. He ain't Peyton Manning of Tennessee back in the day. He ain't Jameis Winston his freshman year at Florida State. He's not one of those guys. That's okay. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. He ain't Johnny Manziel. That's okay. Yeah, he's inconsistent. Well, what do you expect? He ain't going to be just Justin Fields wasn't Justin Fields when he was a freshman at Georgia. Justin Fields, when he was a freshman at Georgia, couldn't start over Jake from State from, which is the reason why he transferred to Ohio State. Very few Trevor Lawrences. Tim Tebow was a specialized quarterback his freshman year because Chris Leak was the starting quarterback and was a better quarterback at that time. So, yeah, C.J. Stroud coming in, yeah, he's going to be inconsistent. No kidding, third game of his collegiate career. He's going to be inconsistent. Yeah, no kidding. Are we going to place the majority of the blame as far as offense is concerned on the struggles of C.J. Stroud? Uh, no. <laughs> Does he bear responsibility? Yes. Well, he's a, you just told me, Wendell, that he's a redshirt freshman. Yeah, I said that he's going to be inconsistent because he's a redshirt freshman. But when you're trying to win a championship, but when you have aspirations and you have expectations and when you're a major college football power like Ohio State, sorry, man, you know, inconsistencies and all that kind of stuff ain't going to fly over the fan base, especially after you've been treated to some of the success of the quarterbacks that have been at Ohio State, namely JT Barrett, then going on to Dwayne Haskins, and then now, 
uh, Justin Fields, and then now C.J. Stroud. So it's a situation where it's kind of like, hey, man, we, we forgot all the days where J.T. Barrett struggled. You know, we, we forgot. I don't know if Dwayne Haskins really struggled at all, but and then, you know, as I mentioned before, Justin Fields came along. So this is something new for Ohio State football fans. The fact that you have a young quarterback who is a young quarterback. Five-star, don't give a fuck. Highly recruited, don't give a fuck. He's still a freshman, and he's still going to learn, and he's still going to be experiencing some growing pains. I know that the uh, fan base might not like it, but hey, man, it is what it is. Now, against Tulsa, he didn't complete a pass against Chris Olive. Only targeted him four, four times. Another example, another reason, another bullet to put into the gun to shoot of C.J. Stroud. What is he doing being our starting quarterback? The discussion point is coming here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with yours truly, Wendell Wallace. The discussion point is coming. You know it. I know it. Your homeboy knows it. Everybody knows it. Especially if you're in Columbus. Especially if you're in Ohio. And especially if you follow the uh, Ohio State Buckeyes. You know it's coming. Right? Do I have to explain it to you? Do I have to, you know, spell it out? If I do, let me go ahead and explain. When will more of the fan base start asking the question. When is Quinn Ewers going to get a chance to play? When is Quinn Ewers going to get a chance to play? When is Quinn Ewers going to get a chance to be on the football field and eventually start for the Buckeyes, right? I mean, aren't, aren't we getting there? Aren't we kind of going down that path as C.J. Stroud maintains his inconsistency for large portions of the games in the three games that he's played? Aren't we going there? Isn't that... Isn't that grown? Isn't that conversation? Isn't that debate starting to uh, gain some legs? Now, currently, Ewers is fourth, the fourth string on the quarterback death chart. He's behind Stroud. He's behind Kyle McCord, who's also a freshman. Look, the man came in. Uh, his, you know, came in in August. He was going to play a senior year of football because of uh, name and likeness. Um, he couldn't be able to cash in on who he was and what his reputation was playing high school football in Texas. So he said, okay, I'll just go ahead and graduate early and then uh, go ahead and uh, go up to uh, Columbus and play on and play on the field. Right now, the main, the main thing that Ewers is known for is the fact that he's making more money than any Ohio State faculty member after being on campus for less than a month. Because in less than two weeks, once he got to Ohio State, 18-year-olds, 18-year-old Quinn Ewers, by the way, Signed three deals worth around $1.5 million under the new name, image, and likeness rules. In fact, Ewers reached a deal with a local beverage company back home. And then an Ohio State, uh, Ohio car dealership uh, gave him a deal upon arriving in Columbus. So right now he's toting around Columbus in a $75,000 Ford 250 Super Duty truck. Somewhere there's a there's a economic professor's going, really, are you fucking kidding me? Seriously? Seriously? I mean, I hated the whole deal about athletics. Now I just now I just want to just, you know, I don't know, just take a baseball bat to that Ford F two fifty and just say, Screw you, Ewers. Screw you, Ewers. But uh that's the way it goes. that's the way it goes. So here's a guy who's you know, supposed to be this guy's supposed to be a generational pro, uh, uh prospect, right? Quinn Ewers. This was a guy that was supposed to save the Texas uh, football program when he committed there. And once Tom Herman was let go, then he said, yeah, you know what? No, no, thanks. In fact, I think that he decommitted even before Tom Herman was let go. So he was probably hearing the, he was probably hearing the word through the grapevine that um, 
Herman was going to be fired, so he was kind of like, yeah, you know what, I need to go somewhere else, and uh, he was uh, he committed to uh, Ohio State, and as I mentioned before, to take advantage of who he was monetarily, he made the move from high school football in Texas to uh, college football in Columbus at Ohio State, so look, there's going to be those investors and fan base folks who, you know, want to see returns on their financial and emotional investment concerning Quinn Ewers because I'm quite sure there were many folks, a lot of folks, a multitude of folks who were Ohio State Buckeye football fans that were dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas and dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie when Ewers decided to go to um, Ohio State. And it was kind of like, we've got this guy who has a high school prospect is being compared to some of the best high school prospects that's ever you know come around the block in the last five, 10 years. Okay, when are we going to be able to get this guy in the football field? Well, he didn't make the trip to Minnesota. He didn't even, you know, he's fourth string. What are we doing here? What's going on here? Especially now with the transfer portal. I mean, I'm quite sure there's some paranoid Ohio State Buckeye fans saying shit. You know, if he ain't going to play this year, what makes another school, another Power 5 school not come to yours and say, hey man, you know what? You're going to be playing, you know, you're going to be competing against a guy who's in the same class that you are and has the experience of playing and is pretty much ingrained in the starting lineup for that team. I mean, why don't you come why don't you uh, come to our school? Why don't you uh, come to our school because we're a quarterback away from really competing uh, for the national championship or some shit like that. I mean, if you're an Ohio State fan, I mean, usually it happens the other way with a team like Ohio State going ahead and rolling out that bullshit for um, players from other teams to say, okay, I'll go to your squad. I'll go to your campus. I'll go to your football program. But it could happen. It could happen. Are you going to let Quinn Ewers leave? Are you going to do the same thing that uh, Justin Fields did when he was a freshman at Georgia and Jake Fromm was starting and he was like, man, screw this. (laughs) I mean, they got me playing behind Jake Fromm. Why? Because he gives them the better chance to win now instead of looking, I don't know, maybe 15 minutes down the line and see that I'm a much better quarterback who can take this program to the highest of highs, much higher than Jake Fromm. See you later. I'll go ahead and apply my wares and apply my greatness and apply my talent to the Ohio State Buckeyes. And shall we say the rest is history. Georgia was a quarterback away from really competing for a national championship. Ohio State, who got that quarterback that was on Georgia's team that could have made them national champions and make them a national championship contender, went to Ohio State, made Ohio State national championship contenders. Is the same thing going to be happening with Quinn Ewers when he's going to be leading shit? I don't know. Florida, when he's going to be leading shit. I don't know. Michigan, when he's going to be leading shit. I don't know. Um, USC, to national championships and Ohio State is still going to be sitting there with C.J. Stroud going uh, 9-3 and in a regular season. I don't know. I don't know, but man, it's going to be that that conversation is going to be coming up and it's going to be coming up fast. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So speaking about what's happening, what's going down with Ohio State, a closer than expected win this past Sunday, this past Saturday against Tulsa, Ohio State on defense. Hey, Ryan Day, the head coach, said that uh, Matt Barnes, no, not that Matt Barnes, uh, Matt Barnes, not Kerry Coombs, called defensive plays versus Tulsa. All right. And he asked if it would be a permanent move. Day was like, well, you know, I got to go back and review the film and see how it works out. But, you know, 
for the most part, yeah, we're probably going to stay with what we've got in terms of the uh, deal, which is now between the defensive coordinators and such. Now, with Coombs as the defensive coordinator of this season, the Buckeyes gave up 408 yards in the first game of the season against Minnesota, gave up 505 yards in a loss to Oregon at home, and Ohio State has given up 200 yards rush, uh, passing in each of his first two games. Well, okay, how did that move to a new defensive coordinator calling the plays work? Well, against Tulsa, the defense gave up 501 total yards, including 428 through the air. So, okay. <laughs> So, yeah, gotcha. Problem for Ohio State, man. Joey or Nick Bosa or Chase Young is not coming through that door. And if he, if they are, they're going to be sitting there to uh, watch the game. They're not going to be uh, suiting up and playing. There is no Chase Young, Nick, or Joey Bosa type of impact player defensive end for the Ohio State Buckeyes. Now, they've had an awesome recruiting class. I think they have like two or three of the top um, defensive players in the class of 2021 but they haven't really seen much of the field yet they really hadn't had the, had the chance to make an impact yet so right now their defense I know they have a lot of freshmen in the secondary but look man based on their performance on the field Ohio State is not the best team in the conference take away the names in the jersey and the history and the you know the, just, just, just based on performance Penn State which has two victories over top 20 schools including a road win against Wisconsin. They're a better football team right now. Michigan running the football. I know they have, you know, questions about the quarterback, but from top to bottom, I think they've been a better football team than Ohio State this season. Michigan State has played better football despite the difference in talent margin than Ohio State. Now, the great thing is because of the talent that Ohio State has, that it's going to be easy for them to get things correct and they have them catch up and surpass teams like Michigan State or teams like Iowa or teams like Michigan or even possibly teams like Penn State. But I don't know, man. I don't know. You know, the the tackling for Ohio State has not been good. They haven't been able to consistently get teams off of the uh, field in third downs. And if you take a look at their remaining schedule, Akron's supposed to be a layup. Akron's supposed to be a get-right team that they're going to be playing that they should beat 62 to nothing and everybody go, woo. Problem solved. Good things are in good times are ahead of us, but wasn't that the same deal with Tulsa? So you play Akron at home, then you go on the uh, road to play Rutgers, and this is not this is not your best friend's Rutgers team. This is Greg Schiano part de Rutgers team, which is much better. Then they play Maryland, then they're at Indiana, then they're Penn State, then they're at Nebraska, Purdue, Michigan State, and then on the road for the game against uh, Michigan. So I guess for the rest of the year, you can say, you know, glass half full fan can say Ohio State can go 10-2 and two this season. Glass half empty or Michigan fan can say that, uh, you know, Ohio State can go 7-5 and five or 8-4. and four. Either way, they're not making the playoffs. If that's going to be the record. So, again, this door is open for a team like Penn State, a team like um, – a team like Iowa and a team like Michigan. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Let me end the segment by talking about the underwhelming Oklahoma Sooners. Beating Nebraska 23-16, to still waiting for OU to play a complete game to what experts think the team should be playing. In fact, I'm, I'm really not feeling the juice on this. Can I have, can, can you feed me a little something here? Hold on, can you, can you give me a little something? I need a little pick-me-up from this. I need a little pick-me-up when I'm speaking about Nebraska. Or excuse me, when I'm speaking about Oklahoma. Can you, can you do me something here? 
Oh yeah. That's much better. Much better. Now I start to, now I'm starting to get the juices flowing. Now I'm starting to get the brain fog, you know, dissipating. Now that's what I'm talking about. Yes, yes. Oklahoma Bump. 23-16 win over Nebraska. 23-16. I'm, I'm, I'm still waiting for Oklahoma to play a complete game of what the experts think should a uh, team of that caliber and that talent should be playing. Your touchdown victory over Nebraska, the team that lost to Illinois, the team that's looking to fire Scott Frost, this might have been a little bit of reprieve, even though they lost for Scott Frost, the fact that they were competitive against uh, Oklahoma. Spencer, Spencer Rattler, average. Started the game going 6-for-7 on his first drive. Finished the game 24-34. 214 yards, one touchdown pass, one touchdown road. A run. He played fine. He played all right. He played good for, for a guy who was supposed to be one of the leading contenders for the Heisman Trophy. I need more. I need something better. I need more consistency. What's going on? Now, you know, people are speaking about Lincoln. Riley was speaking about, well, you know, Nebraska dropped eight and this, that, and the other. It can't be that easy. It can't be that easy. This is Lincoln Riley that we're talking about here. This is the offensive guru that we're speaking about here. This is the guy that has Jerry Joe salivating about wanting him to become the next head coach for that Dallas Cowboys team down the line type of uh, offensive guy to make Ohio State excuse me to make Oklahoma look that pedestrian all you need to do is just drop into coverage and have uh, Rattler's nickel and diamond down the field I don't know I thought that he was outplayed by Adrian Martinez the quarterback for Nebraska who went 19 of 25 for 289 yards and one touchdown and one interception the team ran for 189 yards 5 yards per carry it was fine. I mean, they were they were they were fine. They were okay, I guess. But I just think Oklahoma needs to do do a little bit more. Oklahoma needs to have like you know a Oklahoma type of beat down type of game against a team of of some uh, of some respect. You know what I'm saying? So Oklahoma underwhelming. All right, turn that shit off. <laughs> Teams that have put themselves in position to make the college football playoffs all did well. Cincinnati won a pretty good game on the road, coming back from 14 down to beat Indiana Indiana at Indiana 38-24. Number 10 ranked Penn State, second victory over a top 20 team in Auburn, 28-20. I was impressed with Auburn. Not so much with Bo Nix, but the running game is such. The athletes that the Auburn has, they're going to be good. They're going to be good in a couple of years down the road when they get themselves a real quarterback. Number 5, Iowa won against Kent State, 30-7. Texas A&M, number seven ranked. They beat New Mexico, 34-30. So the others and the also-rans and the possibles and the maybes of college football this season are still right there, ready to pounce on any slip-up, any mess-up, any mediocre, any how-the-hell-did-you-lose-that-game type of performance from any of the top-tier schools. So there you go, man. It's all about parity in college football. And I haven't even talked about the game of the weekend in college football. Well, let me go ahead after I kind of boogie a little bit. Let me go ahead and talk about that next.
Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. The final segment of the program, thank you very much for listening. Talked a lot about what was happening in week two in the NFL, talked a lot about week three in college football. I wasn't even really going to speak that much, as much as I did about college football, but I started talking about dynasties, and I started talking about parody, and I started talking about the most dominant team in North American sports, team sports, Alabama, trying to defend my title about that, and then went ahead and talked about Ohio State, and talked about Clemson, and talked about teams that were dominant in the NBA and the NHL and Major League Baseball and all this rigmarole and before you knew it it was 50 something minutes and I had the Oklahoma marching band going ahead playing Boomer Sooner and that got me going a little bit about the mediocrity that has been the Oklahoma football program so everything came about and next thing you know I looked up and it was like wow how about that 50 something minutes into the segment oops my bad so let me go ahead and uh, get started on this bad boy speaking about The game of the week in college football this past uh, Saturday, the Alabama Crimson Tide holding on against Florida 31-29. First real test of the new era of Alabama football stars, All-Americans, future first-round draft picks, Heisman Trophy candidates. The Tide, you got to, let me back up. Let me ask you a question, man, because you know what your answer is going to be. When it was 21-3 at the end of the first quarter, You had to say, come on, man, game's over. Did you even watch? Was it a situation where you turned the game off, you went and did some things, or you turned to watch another game that you thought would be more competitive, or this was your good time to say, okay, this is what Alabama was going to do, so no need for me to stick around and see a game that's going to probably end up being 44-10 or 49-6 or some bullshit like that, so let me go ahead and do something else. And either you turn back and you said, wait a minute, the score is what? Or is... Later on in the day, you were looking at another game and you saw the score and you were like, what? 31-29? Man, when I turned that game off, it was 21-3. to Well, I'll tell you, man, at the end of the first quarter, it seemed like Alabama was just like, all right, business as usual. And um, Florida said, no, I don't think so. I really don't think so. And it had to uh, stop a two-point conversion with a uh, conversion with 310 left to extend this Woody Street to... 17 games. I guess you can say now that Bryce Young is solidly in the Heisman Trophy picture. Completed 22 or 35 passes for 240 yards, three touchdowns. 22 of his completions went to eight different receivers. John Michi catching six of them for 49 yards. But uh, no real explosive plays on offense. The longest play of the game for Alabama was 29 yards. That was the TD pass to Jamison Williams. And there were only three other plays that went 20 or more yards the entire game. This is Alabama that we're speaking about. This is an Alabama team that, yes, scored 31 points, but this is a team that uh, on a multitude of times has scored over 40 points a game, 50 points a game. So I was just really surprised at the way Florida dominated the offensive line of scrimmage. And if you take a look at that game, if you take a look at the replay of that game, if you take a look at the highlights of the game, if you take a look at some of the uh, plays, the positive plays that Florida had, the way they were marching the ball up and down the field, I mean, Florida went on a 99-yard scoring drive, touchdown drive against Alabama. When was the last time that happened? And we were up here, and I was up here 
talking about how great this defense for Alabama was before the Florida game. I was speaking about how this could be one of the best defensive teams that Nick Saban ever had, and not just me, but the pundits and everybody who knew Alabama football and who knew college football and who studied college football and who does college football for a living, and we're all saying how great and awesome this Alabama defense was. Well, hey, man, in that game against Florida, there were plenty of sloppy missed tackles throughout the game by Alabama. It was surprising. Absolutely surprising. They looked like Ohio State out there as far as the missed tackles, as far as the lack of fundamentals that was happening. Nick Saban after the game said that the uh, team started to wear down and that is a product of the offensive line for Florida just manhandling them and having a strong running game to uh, run the ball down their throats. If you take away the first quarter, Florida was the best team on that field. Florida controlled the majority of the game, as I mentioned before, after the first quarter. They had 440 total yards compared to 331 for Alabama. They ran for 245 yards. That's almost six yards per carry. And Bama rushed for only 95 yards as a team and averaged three yards per carry. Normally, it's the other way around. Brian Robinson really couldn't get going. He seemed to suffer a minor injury. I don't know how much that uh, precluded him from not, uh, you know, breaking off a long run or sustaining some type of running game. But as far as the uh, lines are concerned from the offensive and defensive side of the ball, it was no contest. Florida was uh, mashing and gashing them. The Gators had 26 first downs. They were 6 of 15 on third and fourth downs. Emory Jones, the quarterback, had 272 total yards against Alabama. A guy who could barely complete a pass, yet went 18 of 28 for 195 yards with only one interception, ran the ball 19 times for 77 yards. Here's the thing. More than anything, I'm more impressed with Florida in a loss than I was with Alabama in a win. Yes, they were on the road. Yes, this is a whole new group of football players we're talking about for Alabama. So, for first time on the road, they played a Florida team that played an exceptional game, and they found a way to a win. And great teams, awesome teams, championship teams do that. They might not be playing their best, but uh, they found a way to win. I thought Alabama kind of kicked it in the cruise control, especially the offense, when the score got to be 21-3. to You take a look at the second quarter. I think Alabama only had something like 10 or 15 yards for the entire quarter when Florida started to make that comeback as Florida started to sustain their dominant dom, dom, their dominance among the offensive and defensive front. And uh, like I said, I thought it was going to be another route when it became 23 to uh, 21 to three. So Florida looked like a team that's going to be able to compete. Florida looks like a team we're speaking about who's going to be a worthy uh, opponent to Alabama. And we keep coming up with Georgia because of their defense, but hey man, that cocktail party that's going to be happening in Jacksonville on October 30th between Florida and Georgia, there's going to be some serious ramifications about that one. I mean, this could be a situation where this could be a a playoff game almost. If Florida loses this game to Georgia, basically they're out of the playoff hunt because they'll have two losses. And if they beat Georgia, then that will put them maybe in the driver's seat in the SEC East to go ahead and play Alabama in the SEC championship with, of course, the winner vying for a spot in the college football semifinals. So this is going to be um, an interesting game moving forward. This is going to be an interesting season moving forward for both Georgia, Florida, and Alabama. For Alabama on the other side, 
defense, 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 defense. And with Bryce Young and those guys and so many young players on both sides of the football for Alabama, I don't know. Well, of course, the answer is ridiculous in terms of the statement I was going to make saying, I don't know if Alabama offensively can compete anywhere close to the type of efficiency and dominance that the team from last year uh, put on on a consistent basis from the offensive side of the ball. The answer, of course, is going to be no. That was an all-time great team. So if the defense for Alabama is going to play the same way that they played against Florida, and look, the Alabama, their schedule for the rest of the season really doesn't have too many Florida's and Georgia's of that caliber. Now, they're going to play Mississippi, a team with Lane Kiffin, who can put a lot of points on the board. They're going to play a team in Washington State in Mike Leach, who's going to throw a lot of uh, abstract and a lot of uh, funky uh, offensive uh, situations at them. So that should be an interesting deal. But just in terms of dominance is concerned along the offensive and defensive side of the football, along those uh, offensive and defensive uh, lines, I think Alabama should have the advantage on that situation so it comes down to you know can Lane Kiffin and Mike Leach and some other teams that they're going to be playing can they out scheme um, Saban and the Alabama football team in terms of what they're going to be putting down don't think that any of those teams that they're going to be playing is going to have the defense to stop Bill O'Brien and Bryce Young and that Alabama offense enough for them not to put up 35 42 49 points a game but uh you know, just looking down the road, it's an interesting situation. And it's also interesting the fact that we're speaking about Alabama being in trouble. Alabama now, there's, you know, there's some consternation or there's some uh, concern going on because they almost lost a football game on a road to a top 11 opponent. The first time that a lot of these young guys have been in that situation as college football players. So I think that the overreaction toward Alabama you know, getting a game or being in a game so close against an opponent like Florida, I think that's being I think that's being overblown. There's going to be far and few between the number of teams that Alabama is going to play that's going to give Florida, that's going to give them the type of game that Florida did. And in the interim, the only thing that's going to be happening with Alabama, both on offense and defense, is the fact that they are going to get better. Nick Saban, of course, being one of the greatest coaches in college football history, along with one of the greatest coaches in college athletics period uh, will make sure that uh, those guys will get better on both sides of the ball. How much more can Alabama improve? Well, we talked about parity in college football. Well, how much is it going to really mean in terms of Alabama getting better on defense? What are we talking about? What do we mean when we say Alabama needs to get better on defense? Are we going to be asking them to become dominant is that going to be what the task is going to be, what the situation is going to call for? Or because of the offense getting better, because of what Bryce Young is doing, because of the weapons that they have on offense from the running back and wide receiver position, time going on in the season, those guys are going to be getting better and better and better. Is this a situation where, look, man, if Alabama on defense can just clean up some of the sloppy tackling, can work on the fundamentals, not so have, not have so many missed tackles, that they'll be fine because the offense, for the most part, is going to average anywhere between 31 and 45 points a game. So we're not going to ask the defense to be Georgia-like. We're not going to ask the Crimson Tide defense to be Clemson-like because of how efficient and how dangerous and how potent their offense is. So moving forward, those are the type of things 
that are going to be in place for Alabama. But it was a good game. It was an exciting game. It was a competitive game. And it was a game, I think, that uh, Nick Saban is going to use as an advantage in terms of saying, hey, man, you know, we might be Alabama. We might have a history of dominance, especially in the last uh, couple of years. But, uh, you know, you guys ain't Matt Jones. You guys ain't Devonta Smith. You guys ain't Tua Tungavailoa. You guys ain't Jalen Hurts. You guys ain't Najee Harris. You guys ain't Landon Dickinson. You guys ain't Patrick Sertain. You guys aren't that group of, of players yet that walked on the field, knew the philosophy, knew what was going on, was comfortable, was mature, and what they were trying to do what the objectives were, how I operate Coach Saban, how the defensive coordinator operates, how the defensive line coach cooperates, how the quarterback coach and the running back coach and the offensive coordinator, that chemistry, that relationship that those other teams built years of working on and building so they could get to that level of dominance. We are not there yet because basically this group that's playing and the expectations and the responsibilities that they have, we've only done this for three games. So for us to come out there and expect that we're supposed to pick up exactly where we left off from last season with a whole new bunch of players just because you guys are a bunch of five stars and you guys were all everything in your state and your region and your town and your province and your school district or whatever, that's not going to be happening just yet. You guys are talented. You guys are the best of the best. You guys are coming to Alabama. You guys came from Alabama. We want you at this program. We want you in our program for a reason. But it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take discipline. It's going to take maturity. It's going to take all of those things to get where you want to go. And we're not there yet. But again, the situation of what happened against Florida will expedite the program for Alabama this year, getting back to their level that they have been um, in the last uh, couple of years champions and the best Wendell's world in sports I'm your host Wendell Wallace so glad that you could be with us okay let me go ahead and let me begin with this destiny can take your best friend as an instrument to cause you harm and your worst enemy to do you good Muhammad Ali Malcolm X they define a whole generation to be themselves and be bold were two different worlds, but it was destiny that they would meet. Three short years that they would spend in their lives. Did your brother like being around, Bob? Love, love, love. I did too. Dr. Mason was a genius. They had the student-teacher relationship. He comes back home thinking, okay, I've done this for America, I'm the champ, I'm everything, but I'm still in a segregated world. The Nation of Islam and Malcolm provide a language of black excellence and black supreme achievement. My father wanted to be great. And there are things that Malcolm taught him that my father kept with him until his last day. For my father to take his wife and his babies and go to his home meant that my father trusted him 100%. That was their blood brotherhood. They're changing the way the world saw the black man. But there were these outside forces that prevented them from continuing this beautiful relationship. There's a cross to bear. There's tremendous cost of being a free and loving person. 
They didn't want some Muslim being the heavyweight champion. Malcolm's interest and the interest of the nation diverged. And my father was right up in the middle of it. I, need help, I believe in the brotherhood of all people. I'm out of the black Muslim movement. Right. Malcolm X and anybody else who talks about attacking Elijah Muhammad will die. Do you remember anything that Muhammad Ali regretted? That's a hell of a, hell of a question. If you have Netflix, this is a must-see. This came out September 9th. I haven't had an opportunity to uh, watch it yet, but damn sure I'm going to because anything regarding Malcolm X, I watch anything regarding Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. I'm going to watch anything in terms of that. I am supremely interested in, read the book by Randy Roberts, Blood Brothers, speaking about the relationship between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, two icons, situation where, again, I don't I don't know why these two men are not being discussed in the history books. I don't know why these two men are not being discussed in the U.S. history classes, whether we're speaking about 11th grade history, 10th grade history, not being taught in the middle schools, not being mentioned in the elementary schools. I really don't give a fuck about the ignorance of some folks who feel that Malcolm X is not a subject matter for those who might be the you know, might be age 11 or 12, might not be appropriate for kids who are in middle school who are just trying to navigate through puberty and they're all over the place. I really don't give a shit about the ignorance of folks who feel that Malcolm X is not a suitable subject to be delved into and talked about when we're speaking about uh, uh, high school, uh, U.S. history class. I don't care about the ignorant fools, the privileged morons who believe that, uh, who believe in the fallacy of... Um, Oh, what that bullshit! I don't don't believe in the who believe in the uh, race theories and all that type of stupid shit. Don't believe in the jackasses who feel that teaching these type of things is part of the woke movement and trying to uh, inundate my children with uh, liberal policies and all that stupid shit. I really don't care about those fucking ignorant bastards. I really don't care about those ignorant fools, those privileged ignorant jackasses who are negating their kids, who are neglecting their kids, the ability to become full fledged, loving, respectful human beings of intelligence and ignorance, excuse me, intelligence for all people, for all of what history put down in this country of ours. These type of subjects, such as the relationship between Malcolm X and, and uh, Muhammad Ali should be taught in the, should be taught in the school system, should be taught in the history classes. And it's very uh, interesting, the fact that um, when you speak about, um, Malcolm X's relationship with the not not honorable Elijah Poole, I will never call that piece of shit who used to uh, run the Nation of Islam, that racist, ignorant bastard named uh, Elijah Poole, that, uh, that, that piece of shit, that pedophile, that sorry motherfucker who was going ahead and impregnating females as young as 14 years old. I will not, uh, that, that cult leader known as Elijah Poole, nothing, nothing honorable about that son of a bitch. It's interesting, the fact that the relationship that happened between him and Malcolm and then Muhammad, in terms of many people are going to go to the assumption that the relationship between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X was wedged. There was a wedge put in there by J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI and others, and they played a role. But this was a situation when 
Malcolm and Elijah Muhammad split, you know, were, were apart. The chip to see which one was going to gain real power amongst those Muslims who are going to remain in the movement with the uh, with Elijah Poole or the ones who saw the truth and were going to decide to go with Malcolm, Muhammad Ali was going to play a big role in that. If he sided and went and pledged his allegiance to Malcolm, that could have been a huge devastating blow to those that thug group known as the Nation of Islam at the time. But in the end, Muhammad gave his allegiance to that jackass Elijah Poole. So because of that, it kind of left Malcolm out there in no man's land because that was his only protection. The nation was trying to kill him because some of the truth that was Malcolm was speaking about that, uh, about those thugs, about those, uh, about those jackasses from the nation of Islam, especially uh, Louis, uh, Louis Farrakhan and also uh, Elijah Poole. So he was bringing truth about what the real shit was going on with them. So <clears throat> when Ali left Malcolm and he was brainwashed by the ignorance and everything that the nation of Islam put into his head about how all white peoples are devils and anybody who speaks on the negative about Elijah Muhammad is no good and needs to die and all those type of things. So when Ali was brainwashed by that and decided to disassociate himself from Malcolm and went with Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm was really a dead man walking. I mean, once he left the nation and he started making these remarks and he started, you know, unveiling the curtain to tell the world about what type of uh, thug organization, what type of uh, 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 organization really was the Nation of Islam. He just signed his own death sentence. So all these other fucking assholes who sat there and say Malcolm got what he deserved from the Nation of Islam to be uh, murdered like he did. You guys can go fuck yourselves and I hope you all burn in hell. But um, it just really was a very, very interesting interesting look into the relationship between those two and as i mentioned before how we not how in this world in this day and age we don't speak about how great the nation of uh excuse me the uh, um, uh muhammad ali is how how dropping the ball can we be that when i go up to certain schools and i ask the students some, some of them 15, some of them 16, some of them 17 years old, and they have such either wrong views or such ignorant views concerning Malcolm X and what he stood for and what he was talking about, the lack of knowledge, even if they know who Malcolm X is, and the lack of knowledge of knowing who Muhammad Ali is. I mean, this is a very important. If we're going to be trying to move the society in a loving, understanding, respectful, educated way, as we're trying to move this world, if we're trying to move the society to where people of all different races and faces and places and everything can get together, we have to understand exactly what's going on. How in the world can someone who doesn't, who's not around the true diversity of this country because they're living in an area, they're living in a town, they're living in a region of the country which is predominantly whiter or, or really doesn't have any type of... Uh, uh, communication with other cultures and the only thing that they're getting their knowledge of black people from are jackasses, these race-baiting assholes who are on Fox News or uh, far right wing or something like this. You know, if, if that's the only place they're getting their 
information about what black folks are all about, no wonder these people are so damn ignorant. No wonder these people are so damn privileged. No wonder these people don't have any clue about what's going on in terms of what the black history and why we loot and why we riot and why we fight and why we kneel and why we protest and why we do all these things. And why on occasion we have to go ahead and we have to burn, we have to destroy, we have to loot. It's kind of similar to how this country became liberated, right? How did this country become liberated from England? We didn't do it by peaceful protesting. We didn't do it because the king of England decided, oh, you know what, those poor guys over there, let's go ahead and give them a break. No, it was through violence. It was through looting the the the, 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 um, the, the Boston Tea Party and all that kind of stuff. We gained, this country gained this freedom through riots, through violence, through a war. That's how we gained independence. So kind of goes hand in hand in terms of what black folks have needed to do sometime throughout history if we feel the need that we need to be listened to, that we need to have our issues be taken seriously. Malcolm and Martin and uh, Muhammad and Medgar Evers and others were all a part of that. And remember for those who want to sit there with the Black Lives Matter movement and want to um, put them down, again, out of ignorance, out of stupidity, out of the foolishness of listening to uh, white folks on Fox News and other such and bringing in these jigaboos and Uncle Toms who are going to sit there and try to denigrate the uh, uh, Black Lives Matter movement. Remember, throughout history, especially when it comes to movements of those not of white Christian males, these moves have always been considered radical. These moves have always been considered something where, you know, it's, 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 it's a negative. The civil rights movement was something that was negative at the time. It was a situation where it was like, well, you know what? These guys just need to calm down and they'll get their freedom long enough and they'll get their freedom soon enough and everything will be cool and everything will be great. So, you know, these guys just need to start marching. These guys need to stop protesting. Martin Luther King, just by peaceful protesting at the time, was considered radical was considered radical. A guy who died for freedom and justice and tried to do it in a peaceful way back when he was doing it in the 60s, he was considered to be a radical. So, again, it's all a situation of all of these things need to be tied together if we're going to have the younger generation understand these things so when black folks and brown folks and poor folks and women and gays and others need to do some marching, need to do some uh, things that might have the majority feel uncomfortable you have to know the history of that so we can understand that so we can realize what they're doing and think and listen and learn and come together unity harmony education all those other things blood brothers malcolm x and muhammad ali that is the thing all right man i'm done i'm done preaching mr wallace has put down the preaching book all right so i'm out of here i'm going to end with a little aretha Say a little prayer for you. Love, peace, harmony, Wendell's world of sports. It's all about uh, putting down the love. It's all about putting down the peace. It's all about putting down unity for everybody. Everybody, everyone, everybody with love, peace, education in their hearts. That's exactly what we need to do. The queen of soul, the greatest of them all as far as female singers is concerned. Please, please indulge us with your genius. Music. Thank you.